Brother Vance, once again, you've uh, led us in worship and appreciate you preparing our hearts to hear from God and His Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, Bible or your iPod or iPhone or whatever, open it up to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. As you look around the room, you may say, well, gosh, we have a lot of folks missing and we were hit with double whammy of time change and deer hunting and, and uh, all kinds of other things. But you might look around and see a familiar face. And uh, I want to take a moment and recognize Brother James Best uh, sitting about fourth row back. Brother James Best was one of the longest tenured pastors of this church uh, back from uh, in the 
70s to early 80s, am I right? Through 85, that's right. You were just before Bo Owens. Yes, all right. Yeah, but, uh, but here for, gosh, I think, were you here seven years, almost eight? I don't, okay, well, you can go look at the wall of fame out there by uh, the nursery and, and, and see his picture, and uh, we are glad to have you here today. He was uh, performing, officiating a funeral for uh, Sister Bill Davis, who passed, oh, it's this afternoon, I was told it was yesterday, okay. Okay, this afternoon at 2 at Stringer Griffin, yes, sir. 1 to 2, okay, thank you, Brother James. Appreciate that. Good. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to, yes. I want to encourage y'all to make sure to go by and even if you don't know him, uh, introduce yourself and, and tell him I'm glad you are that he's here this morning. I'm glad you're here this morning, Brother James. Well, we're in Psalm 119. We'll be in verses 137 through 144. And uh, this is the 18th section of Psalm 119 as we've been going through this psalm. Uh, we've been looking at these different letters and how this is an, an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, so this is the 18th, and I told you there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. That means after today we only have four. Uh, unfortunately, only four more letters to go, so four more sections in Psalm 119. Let me ask you, if I stood here this morning and I told you that I was filled with jealousy. Some of you might be concerned, wouldn't you? If I stood up here this morning and told you that I was dealing with some envious issues, some of you might say, well, Pastor, I'll pray for you. And I appreciate that. If I told you, if, if I told you that I was dealing with uh, being consumed or overcome with passion, you might pull me aside and say, now, hold on, Pastor. Uh, we, need to, uh, we need to pray about that right now. You need to go hold of yourself. But actually, what if I told you jealousy, envy, and passion are not necessarily a bad thing if they are motivated by the right thing? Don't run me out yet. Let me explain. Is there a right thing for us to be jealous and envious and impassioned about? Yes, there is. What are we talking about? What about our country? No, I'm not talking about our country. As much as I enjoy living in the U.S. of A., as much as I appreciate our country and our freedoms, our country is not something it is okay to be jealous, envious, or impassioned about. How about our families? Our families are important. Whatever those might be. Grandkids, yes, got our grandkids that's here this morning, right? Grandkids over here. Uh, we have uh, our children, our, our spouses. But no, I'm not even talking about our families. These things are good, families in our country, uh, and they deserve, uh, uh, they deserve our efforts, they deserve our prayers, but they do not make it right for us to have jealousy, envy, or passion. But the scripture we're going to look at today does give us that sole answer to this question, when is it right to be jealous, envious, and passionate? That 18th letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the letter Tzadik. Uh, there is nothing like this letter in the English alphabet. The sound of it is kind of a combination of our T letter and our S letter. And it is a very interesting looking letter. Uh, I didn't get our PowerPoint done, unfortunately, this week. And I wanted to show you that letter. But 
Needless to say, the, the basic look of it is, is like a man who is bowed down, or a woman, that is bowed on their knees, hands lifted up. And I've been telling you, each of these Hebrew letters are symbols of Hebrew words in and of themselves. Well, the, the Hebrew letter Tzade is a symbol of the devoted, righteous servant. Sometimes also seen as the humble and faithful servant. Either way, the overall idea, overall idea seen in the Hebrew letter Tzade is devotion, humility, righteousness. And this leads me into the point of where I was starting. Is there a uh, opportunity or is there a time when jealousy, envy, and passion can actually be good, right, and righteous? Well, let's read our scripture and then we'll get to that. Verse 137 of Psalm 119. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commanded, are righteous and very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. Let's pause a moment for prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we come this morning asking, please speak to us. We ask for your word, Lord, to speak to us, because it is holy, it is inspired, it is without error, and it has the power to change us from the inside out. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit, who is present in this place, to speak to us, to convict us, to uh, confirm in us those things we know, those things we need to know, and how we need to change from the inside out. Every single one of us, Lord, need to be changed. We do not need to leave this place the way we walked in. There is something about us that you need to speak to us. And we come before you and ask this because, Lord, my words are powerless. My thoughts are powerless. So, Lord, we call upon you, your Holy Spirit, your word, to speak loud and clear to us this morning. Get me out of the way, Lord, and speak in spite of me. Lord, in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So, when is it okay to be filled with jealousy, envy, and passion? When that something is God in His holy word, we are okay to be filled with jealousy, envy, and passion. In the case of God's word, our devotion to the Lord manifests its, it should manifest itself in a way of jealousy, envy, and passion. The psalmist states in verse 139, My zeal has consumed me. That word consume literally reads like this, or that verse literally reads, Consume me with my zeal for you. This word zeal literally refers to jealousy and envy. That's what the Hebrew word for zeal comes from, is the idea of being jealous, of being envious, but not for another person, not for ourselves. He is, uh, he is jealous, he is envious, he is filled with zealous, zealousness for the Lord and for his glories. Because others have trampled all over the Lord's commands. It's okay for us 
to say, I have much zeal and I am consumed by it, I am impassioned by it for you, Lord. When it is directed at the Lord and directed at His Word, and what this means is that the psalmist's zeal is primarily and only motivated by the Lord not receiving the glory that He wants and He deserves. That's when it's okay for us to be filled with jealousy. I'm not filled with jealousy for myself or over you. I am filled with jealousy for the Lord to have the glory He so rightly deserves. I'm not filled with envy because you got a brand new pickup truck. I am filled with envy for the Lord because He deserves all the glory in this world. I don't want you to get the glory. I want Him to get the glory. And I am consumed or I am impassioned with that zeal. But more than other people sinning against God and His Word, what would cause the psalmist to feel this way? And the constant theme of this scripture is the righteousness and the rightness of God's Word. The righteousness and the rightness of God's Word. Verse 140 perhaps establishes the psalmist's deep-seated reason for having been consumed or impassioned with zeal for the Lord. Verse 140 in my version reads like this, Your word is very pure. I mean, it's not just pure, it is overwhelmingly pure. And that word pure has to do with refinement. You know, when you buy gold, I don't know if you buy gold, but when you do, if you do, you pay more if it is fine or purified or pure. The more pure gold is, the more you will pay for it. In comparison to the Lord, gold is dirty and disgusting. The Lord is very pure. His word is very pure, more pure than refined metal. What the psalmist is stating in these first four verses is a deep appreciation and adoration for God and His word. And again, we cannot fully adore God and not adore His word. We cannot adore His Word and not adore God. They go hand in hand. We can't have appreciation for the Lord and not His Word. They go hand in hand. There is a purity in the Word. And that Word really is a reference to the refinement of God's Word. Not that man has refined it, but because it comes from the Lord, it is automatically refined. It is automatically pure. And it is both right and righteous. Right in verse 137. In my version, it says upright. And, and, and what that word translates, this upright or being right, is, is means that it's straight. It's not crooked. It's not going back and forth. It's not flip-flopping. It is straight and accurate, and it is correct, and it is right. The word there is used in regards also for a proposal for peace, often between two warring nations. This is the psalmist's adoration for the Word of God. And because of this, he is first led to exclaim, Righteous are you, O Lord. In other words, because of the rightness, because of the correctness, because of the straightness of your Word, God, you are righteous. And that word righteous doesn't mean that God is sometimes righteous. It doesn't mean that He is sometimes doing the right thing. It is an exclamation of the attribute of righteousness which goes beyond a single act. To say that the Lord is righteous means that He is always perfect. He is always without error. He is always good. 
every action, every characteristic, everything that pertains to God is right and pure and correct and righteous. And therefore His commands are right and righteous. This is why the psalmist is consumed with zeal for the Lord. Because if it was anything less than right and righteous, there would be no zeal. Right? If I could find error in something, then my zeal for it would not, be de- it would not deserve my zeal, my envy, my jealousy for it to have glory. You see, God and His Word only get that because they are without error, because they are perfect, because they are right, and they are righteous. The difference, bear with me, and therefore His commands are right and righteous, and this is what motivates the psalmist, this is what causes him to be consumed in passion with zeal for the Lord and His Word. But what does it mean to be consumed? What does it mean to be consumed with zeal for the Lord? What does it mean to have a passion, to have jealousy and envy for God's Word? Well, this goes right along with how last week's section of Psalm 119 ended. Look at that verse with me, if you will. Verse 136. We covered this last week, but let's just review it real quick. It says in 136, verse 136, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. We talked about how what was going on was God's law was broken. And my statement to you was that what was really breaking the heart of the psalmist here in verse 136 was that because men chose sin over God and His righteous word, the glory of God was defamed. The glory of God was tarnished. I said that because we were created in the image of God. And so every time we choose sin versus the righteousness of God, we tarnish that image we were created in. And that psalmist sees mankind choosing sin. Doesn't rejoice in the sin, but laments over the sin. Laments over the choice. I'll choose unrighteousness instead of the righteousness of God. And so, to be consumed with zeal for the Lord would mean that our heart laments over the unrighteous choices choices of mankind. A physical manifestation might lead us to be in deep prayer for man. Remember, Psalm 119 in its entirety, all 22 sections of it, are a prayer. A prayer from the psalmist to God. Would there be any other action we might be led to do in regards to our deep zeal, our envy and jealousy for God to receive glory instead of ourselves Well, my mind races to the story of King Josiah. I love the story of King Josiah. We don't have time to talk about all of the details of King Josiah, but to just sum it up, there's this moment in the story of King Josiah where the priest, the, the priest over the tabernacle, the temple, comes to King Josiah and he makes this statement to him. King Josiah, we have found a book. And what that book was, was the Word of God. Can you imagine, just pause a moment, you have gotten so far away from God you didn't even know that there was a Bible. 
got, got, gotten so far away in their relationship with God, they didn't even know that God had given them a written revelation of His Word. That's how far away the Israelites had gotten from God. And this priest comes to King Josiah and says, King, we found a book. And what happens, long story short, King Josiah gets this book, he begins to study this book, he begins to read this book, and then he is deeply convicted from reading the Word of God, and he is consumed with such zeal for the Lord that the first thing he does is he personally repents. He is personally led to turn his back on the sinful things he has done, which tarnishes the image of God that he was created in, and turns his life back to God. But then, because he is the king of Israel, he leads in this massive revival all through Israel. Now, I don't know about any of you. Are any of you the king of Israel? Are any of you even the king of Texas? Okay, so we have no kings, no presidents, nothing like that. But many of you are fathers or mothers or grandparents. In other words, you don't have an entire nation to lead a revival, but you do have a circle of influence. And so my point is this. Our being consumed with zeal for the glory of the Lord looks like this. We are first convicted in our heart of that thing which is in us that tarnishes the image of the Lord, and so we repent. We turn our back on that sinful thing, and we turn our lives back to the Lord. And then we lead in a personal revival of those we have a circle of influence over. For me and my house, that's my house. I have a circle of influence there. But also, I have an influence here on the church. That's one of the reasons we've started this 40 days of prayer. We need to turn our hearts to God and ask Him to please lead us as a church. Where is your circle of influence? Where is the Lord perhaps telling you you need to turn your back on and turn back towards Him? You see, we can only take care of what God has given us to take care of. And... This is what I hear the psalmist saying in the final four verses of this section. And he summed up with two words. Because we might be led to ask this question. Why do we not have the same passion or zeal for the Lord that the psalmist prays about? We speculate that the historical writer of Psalm 119 is David, the king of Israel. And though he is king and has sway over an entire nation... I believe many of us can relate to David. We can't relate to the fact that he's a king, but I think we can relate to his life. Because when you look at the life of David, he's so, isn't he so up and down? I mean, one, even as you read through the Psalms that we know he has definitely written, one moment he's like, the, the love of God is everlasting, and the next moment he's like, when are you going to do something, God? We can, I don't know about you, I can appreciate those up and down kind of emotions. But we can also appreciate his up and down kind of life because while, yes, he is known for being the champion that defeated the giant Goliath, right? This great moment of victory, of working in faith through God. He is also known for that horrible act of faithlessness with Bathsheba. That's why I say I think we can all relate to him because we've all probably experienced that wonderful moment of victory of God working through us in faith but we have also probably all experienced numerous occasions of our faithlessness to God and that working in us as well. So we can appreciate 
King David. We can appreciate the up and down moments, the high and the lows, those seasons of success and also those seasons of sin. But there's one defining characteristic that even God says about David. He says, David is a man after my own heart. Meaning that in spite of all the sins that he might be known for, David never betrays the Lord. David never turns his back on the Lord and his word for good. Meaning that in spite of his up and down life, he is still in relationship with the Lord. He recognizes his immense dependence on the Lord. And so what I hear the psalmist saying in these final four verses of this section can be summed up like this. How do we have a zeal for the Lord? Or why do we not have a zeal for the Lord, perhaps is the better way of saying it? Two words. Humility. I think part of the problem we struggle with is humility. We, we don't have a zeal for the glory of the Lord because, frankly, I'm too filled with glory for myself. I'm, I'm too concerned about myself. Hear what the psalmist says, right, in verse 141. I am small and despised. Making honest reflection upon himself in comparison to God. This past week, as we began that 40 days of prayer, many of you commented about day three. and What a great statement it ended on. You all remember that statement? Humility says, I only care what God thinks of me. Humility says, I only care what God thinks of me. That's a great statement. It's a good reminder. And it will lead us to have great zeal for the righteousness of God because when we only care about what God thinks of us, we go to every extent possible to please Him. Listen, for years, I, as I studied in, in college, we talked about this uh, personality trait some people have called being a people pleaser. I don't want to be a people pleaser. I want to be a God pleaser. I don't know about you. I want to be a God pleaser. I want to do everything I possibly can to please him, recognizing, really, I never truly can on my own. It requires him. But that's a state of humility. The psalmist states, I am small and despised. Literally, he is confessing his unimportance. Have you ever really took a, taken a long look at the universe that surrounds us? the size of the stars and the planets and the, the moons that all are circling around this planet and then you go out millions of light years and there are suns, are, are not suns, but stars that are just ginormous. They're bigger than anything you could ever imagine. And you think about in all of that universe, then there's little bitty me. I, in comparison to all of creation, am, am insignificant. Sometimes I think, you know, what I'm doing here is, oh man, this is so important and this is going to go down uh, for generations to come. But you know what? In 10, 15 years, maybe less, I don't know, nobody will remember who I am. Somebody else will come along and be the pastor of this church and there'll be a group of people here who say, Brian, who? And that's not I'm, not, I'm not necessarily putting myself down, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a statement of understanding how insignificant I am in the grand scheme of things. I am small and despised, David says. That's, that's a thought of humility. In the grand scheme of God's great plan for this planet, His great plan of re redeeming 
us. I'm just a small part. Humility says, I don't care about what others think of me. I care what God thinks of me. Humility also doesn't think lowly of ourselves, but humility thinks less of ourselves. You know, I had a friend that used to say, you know, Brian, I'm kind of a big deal around here. I don't get to talk to him very much anymore, but I wish he would say that to me again so I could quote Psalm 119, 141 to him. Yeah, buddy, well, I'm small and despised. I'm insignificant. Compared to God and His great power and His significance in this world, you see, when we recognize our great insignificance in the grand scheme of things, it gives us a great zeal, a great jealousy and envy and passion for God to receive all the glory. Because if we receive the glory, then nothing happens. But when God receives the glory, people get saved. People get saved. It's because the psalmist recognizes his unimportance that he dives deeply into that which is not small and despised. The one thing that he knows is important. I do not forget your precepts, Lord. The word of God is not small and despised. The word of God is big and ginormous and huge and it's so important. And hear me, I'm not trying to get you to buy into some sort of self-degradation, defamation program where we all go around repeating to, your, to ourselves, I am unimportant and I am insignific insignificant. That's, that's not the point. But at some point we must agree with John the Baptist who says he must increase and I must decrease. He must become more, I must become less. Humility not only says I care more about what God thinks, it also says I want the Lord to receive all the glory because when He receives the glory, great things happen. The second word in this, I'm skipping a little bit. I, I, now, you know what, I don't want to skip that, so bear with me on the sake of time. If, if many, so why do we not have a zeal for the righteousness of the Lord? It's a lack of humility. We care too much about ourselves, about what others think about us, about the things of this world and how they affect us. We've not set aside our own selves and really listened to the calling of the Lord. If many would follow after me, let him lay down his life and die to himself. That's the calling of the Lord. You see, we're con so concerned with our future. We're so concerned about what will become of us, of what will become of our future, of our nation even, that we are consumed instead of being consumed or impassioned with the glory of the Lord. We're consumed with ourselves. We're impassioned with ourselves. And this takes so many shapes and forms. Again, I love the fact I live in America, that I'm blessed with endless opportunities and freedoms in this nation, but my zeal cannot be for America or Colmenil or myself. Because none of these things will lead the lost to life everlasting. None of these things will set men free from sin. None of these things will remain forever and ever. And none of them will sustain us in life itself. Only the Lord, only His Word is able to do this. That's why it deserves our passion, our zeal, our jealousy. 
So when the political rhetoric starts to fly and I feel those hairs on the back of my neck start to unfurl, I must remind myself, is this the zeal that I am to be consumed with? No, because politics won't save anybody. When the hometown team is losing because of a bad call by the referee and I feel the heat running through my veins, I must remind myself, is that the zeal I'm to be consumed with? No, because referees and the hometown team will not lead anyone to salvation in Christ. Listen, are you more upset that people are kneeling to the national anthem than you are that they are defaming the name of Jesus Christ? That's not the zeal we're to be consumed with. Because national anthems will not lead anyone to salvation in Christ. It's okay to have a little bit of zeal for ourselves, right? What's wrong with us taking care of business? After all, doesn't the Lord want us to be good stewards of the lives He has given us? Well, of course He wants us to be good stewards. But the real issue here is in light of humility is this sense that people are searching for significance. A significance within humanity or among humanity. We all want to be somebody. I was performing a wedding somewhere and uh, was sitting next to an older gentleman and, and we were watching some kids take selfies and I leaned over to him and I said, they'll probably be posting that to social media later. And he said, he said, Facebook has made us into a narcissistic society. Narcissistic simply means that all you do is think about yourself. You're consumed with yourself. You, you, you want to make sure that you're taken care of. I didn't have the heart to, 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 to talk back to him and say, Sir, we've been a narcissistic society since Adam and Eve took that forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. All we've been is consumed with ourselves. It takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes we call it patriotism. Sometimes we call it being a good citizen or being a good student. But in the end, it's all being consumed with ourselves instead of consumed with the glory of God. The problem is that our search for significance is often at the cost of glorifying the Lord so that we can find that significance, which is really a nice way of saying we are looking to glorify ourselves. We look for that significance in the things that we build, like our careers, our homes, our net value, our resumes, our savings accounts, our retirement funds, legacies that are monuments to ourselves and not to the Lord. We are constantly seeking for significance from our own hands, not realizing there will never be any more significance that we can find than that which is found in the Lord. Your greatest search for significance is realized in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we must humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and find the greatest significance we will ever find, being a child of God, having the legacy of an everlasting life. The second reason that our zeal is lacking for the Lord is simply a lack of dependence. Here the dependence of the psalmist on God. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. Are we growing tired of this psalmist who always cries out about trouble and anguish and trial and tribulation? I hope not, because that is a common motto through life, isn't it? There will always be trials, there will always be trouble. 
Our ultimate realization of joy and rest and comfort is not to be found this side of heaven. That's a truth. We will always have troubles. Jesus Christ promised it before He went to the cross. We get a taste of it in our relating with the Lord, that taste of everlasting joy and comfort and rest and, and, and satisfaction. But we will not realize it this side of heaven. But we are also promised His presence and His sustaining power. And that's where this requirement for complete and total dependence on God comes in. Trouble and anguish have overtaken him, yet he is able to delight in the word of the Lord. Why? Because he has found his dependence on God. And while this trouble continues on in this world, we have this promise of his right and righteous word that is pure from any mistakes, an understanding from God. We cannot gain understanding in this world apart from the Lord. We cannot gain understanding of how to apply His Word to the troubles in our life, or the trials we go through, apart from the Lord. But we live in an age of self-determination. I can do it on my own. The human will is a powerful thing. These are the thoughts of the age that we live in. If you have enough education, if you have enough logic, if you have enough human reasoning, you have the ability to discern and logically come up with a solution to your problems. But this is not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says, gain understanding from me and you will live. That's what the psalmist's dependence is on. Verse 144, this is how he ends. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. His life is dependent on the Word of God. His life is dependent on understanding, applying God's Word to his life. He recognizes that his only hope is the righteousness, the rightness, the correctness of God's Word. Because while everything else fades away, while everything else is a tarnish upon the image of God, God's Word lasts forever. The grass withers and fades away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And the psalmist does not ask for a new revelation. He doesn't ask for a new word from the Lord. He says, Lord, give me understanding of your word, that which I already have. I will be revived. I will have life through the application of your word to my life. His whole life revolves around God's word. Does your life revolve around God's word? Is there a day that goes by that you look at this book and you think, I've got to have taste of his word today in my life. I am so dependent on hearing from the Lord through his word today. Do you long for a quiet moment where you can open the word of God and spend time in it? Are there days that go by that you don't even think about opening his word and saying, oh yeah, I forgot, I probably should be reading the Bible. How much do we really depend on God's word. We are likewise dependent on God's righteousness. Righteousness speaks to the purity of the Lord, meaning that he is without sin. And this is the problem. Not that he's without sin, but that we are not without sin. And because of our sin and our lack of righteousness, we cannot spend eternity in heaven with God. We must either be completely righteous, which means that we have no sin, or we must somewhat have our unrighteousness replaced. It's not somewhat. Somehow have our righteousness replaced. This is part of the story of the gospel. 
We could not obey the law perfectly. We could not complete the righteous requirement of God's law. But Jesus did. Because He did, He was sent to the cross. He died taking with Him to the grave the punishment of unrighteousness. And when we put our faith in Jesus, God literally places the righteousness of Jesus Christ onto, into our lives. He replaces our unrighteousness with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Some of you know Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But do you know Romans 3.22? This righteousness, that is, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So when you start reading verse 144, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. We start seeing the righteousness of Christ is what is everlasting. And I need that everlasting righteousness placed on my life. How do I get it? By putting faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Do you see the great dependence we must have upon God for this very life? This morning we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. A beautiful, symbolic meal of what Christ did for us when He gave His body over to the crucifixion, His blood shed for our sins. But it is also a reminder of the righteousness of Christ that we take upon ourselves. You see, when we take that bread or that little cracker and the juice and we put it into ourselves, we are symbolically saying, I take all of Jesus onto me in faith, understanding I am saved by Him and Him alone. And when we do that, we understand that the righteousness of Christ came into our lives through faith if we have believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of this act. But if you have never been saved, there's no reminder there. It's simply an act. It's simply eating some cracker and some juice. You've not been given this righteousness from God through Christ. And the Lord's Supper is nothing but a useless meal to you. But you can change that this morning. We're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response. Our musicians are going to play some music. I'll pray and I'll be down for it. And if you have never prayed and asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, we want to give you that opportunity before we share this Lord's Supper. Because you do not need to take the Lord's Supper if you're not a born-again believer. It's just a useless meal. And more than that, the Word of God says it is an insult to the Lord for you to take it in vanity. Don't take the Lord's Supper if you have not taken the Lord Himself and His righteousness upon you in an act of devotion and dependence of salvation. Let's close with a word of prayer. And then we'll have this time of response, this time of invitation. God, I, I pray that you were able to speak in light of me, in spite of me. Father, I pray that your word was heard. And Lord, if there are any lost here this morning, any who understand their great need to throw their life on you and say, I need this righteousness to replace my unrighteousness, then Lord, I pray that they would just they would let go of anything hindering them and come running to you. If you have questions, we're down here. I'm down here. If you want to talk to a lady, my wife is down here. If you want to just come pray, we have these wonderful kneeling benches. They're awfully dry. They need 
They need to be wet by the tears of those repenting or those who are lamenting over the sin of the world. Lord, we pray that you would move in this place and that none of us, none of us would be distracted by your, from your Holy Spirit by the things in this room or by the things in our life. It is in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.